Today's sermon will be from Colossians 1, starting in verse 24. Today's scripture reader is Paula Nolan. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am present with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Thank you, Paula. Let's pray, asking that God would work in us through the teaching of his words. God, we gather here under your word asking that you would strengthen us, that you would help us to grow, to be more like Christ, to mature, to be who you have called us to be. We ask that you would help us to not be shaken by philosophies inside or outside of the church that are against what you teach us. We ask that you would help us to hold fast to our hope, which is found in Christ alone. And God, I ask that you would help me as I seek to teach your word and to apply it to our lives, that you would help guard me from things that are false. We ask that you would work in us for our good, but ultimately so we can see Jesus and give him the praise, the honor, and glory he deserves. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. It's my joy to be opening God's word for us this morning. If you're our guest today, I want to introduce myself. My name's Richie. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace City in the Northeast. I'm so glad you're here with us that Um, We can look at God's word together. We're currently going through um, this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. It's called the book of Colossians. So we've been working through chapter one over the past few weeks, and now we're starting to finish chapter one and enter into chapter two. So that's where you join us if you're gathering with us for the first time. And... Every week we try to plan our liturgy or what we do when we gather to worship God um, 
to flow together to help us have a right understanding. Um, so I hope, um, first, I'm gonna give you kind of a pastoral encouragement. Um, today especially, it's, it was so good from the beginning to be growing into God's word that we're gonna be studying together, to show up on time if you're able to, to get here at about 10 o'clock. Um, I am gonna read the passage in a little bit that we read for our scripture reading corporately, um, but so many times we're building our liturgy towards what we're gonna be learning together. So I wanted to give a pastoral encouragement to, to try to make a good effort to show up on time because we, we often miss um, some good things that we're singing, that we are praying, and that we're reading together. And if you missed out earlier this morning on some of what we did because you were unable to be here on time, um, I am gonna try to catch us up so you don't miss parts of that, um, but we don't do that every time. So today we're gonna be looking at, as the screen says behind me, what maturity in Christ, or to be mature in Christ looks like, um, as we read, as Paula read for us from chapter one, verses 24, through chapter two, verse five. We're gonna look at Paul's work on behalf of the church that he was seeking to love and to lead into knowing and trusting in Christ in order that they are not easily shaken or swayed away by cleverness or plausible or good-sounding arguments that those make both inside and outside of the church that can take us away from the true gospel, the true treasure that we have in Jesus. So that's where we're going today. We're gonna look at what leaders do in the church as we seek to make Jesus known and to encourage the church to believe and trust in him alone. And we're gonna see how we need to hold fast to the mystery, which is Christ, the gospel, the hope of glory in order not to be shaken by plausible or good-sounding arguments both inside and outside of the church. So in light of that, our big idea today is that leaders in the church work hard to encourage us to know Christ and to be firm in our faith. It's gonna stay up there during our whole time as we look at this passage. So again, if you're taking notes, leaders in the church work hard to encourage us to know Christ and to be firm in our faith. So as we look here at Colossians chapter one, at the end of that chapter, we see Paul continuing to encourage the believers in Colossae that he has been laboring hard for the good of the church, that he is sacrificially serving them. And as a reminder, or maybe it's your first time considering this letter as Paul's written it to the church, Paul is currently imprisoned when he is writing this letter. He is enduring suffering for the sake of the gospel because he is holding fast to the hope that is with him. He is in chains. So he is working hard, not just through his suffering, but through his prayer and his proclamation as well. So we see Paul describe suffering in verse 24. We say, see in verse 29 that he says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy. So he acknowledges that even though he is working hard, it is not he alone at work, but it is God himself who is working within him. And then again in chapter two, verse one, Paul states, how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. He is working hard 
for the people he loves. Now, one phrase that we're going to look at real quick that might sound like, wait, Paul's really going off the rails here, and it comes immediately, is where he says, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. It sounds crazy, right? It's like, whoa, Paul, dude. <laughs> You've written a lot of other good stuff to other churches and even to us already about how Christ is everything, Christ is enough, only Jesus, only Jesus, only Jesus. And then he's saying, you know what? Christ and his suffering and his afflictions, they, they're not enough. But that's not actually what he's saying. So we're going to look at what he's actually saying, okay? So don't be worried like, all right, we need, you know, we need to tear out Colossians. We need to tear out this verse from the Bible because Paul is saying something that is contrary to God's word. Um, it's, it's helpful to see both what Paul has already said um, to know that, wait, no, Paul doesn't think he's making up for some deficiency in what Christ has done for us. So later in chapter two, he says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Everything that we owed God because we have sinned and fallen short, like Romans says, all, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and what is the wages of sin? It's death all of that has been set aside because Jesus was nailed to the cross. In Hebrews chapter nine, the author of Hebrews writes, he has appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Scripture clearly teaches that Christ's sacrificial death and his suffering on our behalf were enough for our salvation. So what... It, if Paul's not saying that Christ's sacrifice and his afflictions were deficient or not enough, what is he saying? Well, one helpful thing to do is Paul actually uses very similar phrasing in Philippians chapter 2. When he's describing um, a servant named Epaphroditus, who the church in Philippi is sending to serve Paul to give a gift that the Philippians had gathered, but didn't have a way to get it to him. He was too far away. There needed to be someone to go and be a tangible expression of the Philippians church, love for Paul. And when Paul is describing Epaphroditus, he says in chapter 2, verse 30, you can turn over to there. It's right before where we read. Chapter 2, verse 30 We'll start in 29. So receive him, Epaphroditus, and the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what is lacking or to fulfill what is lacking in your service to me. So when Paul uses it in Philippians and when he uses it here, he is not saying that there is a deficiency in the sacrificial work of Jesus. He's saying this is a tangible physical expression of love that Christ, as he has ascended, now is not able to express towards his church, but Paul, on behalf of Christ as his servant, is expressing towards the church. He's expressing Christ's love and his own love for the church by his suffering for them. It's a physical 
suffering that Paul is enduring. He is Christ representative of his love, so the, the afflictions have a personal representation to the church. This is not a filling of a deficiency, but it is a furthering um, of an expression of love. It's not a deficiency in the, the, the completeness of the sacrifice of Jesus, but it's completing or filling a lacking of a tangible expression of that love. So Paul is not a heretic here, and I have done my best not to be a heretic in my description. Um, but it is Paul saying, I am doing here on earth what Christ is not here on earth currently doing for you. I am showing you love by suffering and working hard for you. So he's not just suffering in chains, but Paul, what we see in earlier in Colossians and in other places, Paul is working hard for them. Even though he's in chains, he's working hard. How is he working hard? He says he's toiling. He says he is struggling for them. Well, in Colossians chapter one, it says, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Later on in chapter four, four, we'll see Paul again refer to Epaphras and describe his struggle through prayer for their full assurance. The church in Colossae, their full assurance. Those are similar words to what Paula read for us in our passage for today, that there is a struggle, a spiritual work of praying and of teaching as Paul is writing this letter to work hard for the good of the church in Colossae. Now, Paul very well could have been doing these things and not mentioned it. He could have been praying for the church and not let them know about it. He could have been teaching somebody to take something to them and not say, make sure you tell, it, tell them it's from me, from Paul. But what Paul's doing here in this letter, in this section, is letting them know that he's working hard to deliver this message because he loves them. Kids, I think this, this can hit for you and maybe for adults too. But when gifts are given to us and we know how much they cost, it means more. When we receive a gift and we know how much it costs, it means more. Now, cost isn't just money. And this is where I'm going to help you maybe to mature a little bit. So kids, as you think about whether it's birthdays or Christmas, you might receive gifts that maybe are really meaningful, but don't cost a lot of money. But if you know the time that somebody spent to make something for you, it becomes more valuable to you if you are of the sentimental type, right? It would be good for all of us to appreciate the hard work and effort somebody puts into a gift. Sometimes we don't think to ask those questions. But when we know that somebody has put their thought, their care, their love, and what's true in the early church, too, have given out of their poverty, the gift means more. When we know somebody has struggled to be able to provide a gift they're giving, it means that much more. So kids, when you think about Christmas or birthday gifts, know that whatever gift that is from your parent, from a friend, from a grandparent, whether they've made it 
or they've purchased it, there was love behind it because they sacrificed something to give it to you. One of our daughters recently had a birthday and even within the church, she's receiving gifts from younger youth in the church who have used their money that they've earned by working hard to sell things that they've created and part of what they're doing with that money is to give gifts to friends in the church. They don't have a lot of money. Those businesses they're working in aren't creating thousands of dollars of revenue, but part of what they're doing with that money is encouraging a friend. It's costly to them, and they do it with joy, just like Paul is working through prayer and through teaching, struggling with joy, rejoicing, he says it a few times here, for the sake of the church in Colossae. What do spiritual leaders in the church do? Again, they labor hard for the good of the church in sacrificial service with joy. As pastors in this church, we seek to pray for you. We seek to counsel you. We seek to teach you and encourage you and exhort you. And sometimes that's hard. Not because you're hard. Sometimes people are hard. But it's hard And pastors aren't the only spiritual leaders in the church either. There are times where friends, we come together in our small groups, and those who are more spiritually mature try to encourage those who are weaker at different points in time. And that can be costly. It can cost us time. It can cost us emotion. It can cost us relationships. It's costly. But when we are working hard, as Paul's working hard, with him who works powerfully within us, that is God himself working within us, we can sacrificially labor hard for the good of the church with joy. Leadership in the church, as Paul very well knew, was not for prominence, prosperity, or comfort. As a danger, especially in the American church, something that we have to fight against, Spiritual leadership in the church is not for comfort, prosperity, or enjoyment in the sense of worldly things. It is a sacrificial labor of love for the good of the church. In studying this passage, I've had a good, helpful evaluation of what are ways I am not doing this well. Um, Some of the things that we do as we study God's word, first it works in us and then we try to help lead you, the church, as we have known God's word and as he's been working it in us. I can echo with Paul here that it is a joy to labor hard for you. It's a joy to pray for you. And we do. We pray for you often. We love you. It's a joy to teach today. I am not the one who is standing up here every single week. It is a joy to remind us that our only hope is in Christ alone, that the gospel is where riches are found. So if you are one of those who are more spiritually mature, an older brother or sister in Christ who leads in various ways in the church, in our church today, I would encourage you, Continue laboring hard for the good of our church. Whether you teach a Bible study or help lead a discipleship community or help lead different ministries in the church, 
the labor you are putting forward for the good of church and for the glory of God is worth it, even if you don't receive earthly recognition or treasure. Work hard for the Lord. And be like Paul, as he says in verse 27, sorry, verse 29. Don't do it in your own strength, but with all his energy, that is Christ's, that he powerfully works within me. Spiritual leaders in the church, however you may see yourself, if you are of the more mature follower of Jesus, been down the road leading different ministries, don't work within your own power, but rely on the Lord who fills us by the power of his spirit. And sometimes when we're working hard, people question our motives. People would try to tear down Paul, opponents of Paul. And sometimes people try to tear down leaders in the church, or if we're giving counsel, they'll say, why are you doing this? You just want something from me. By the grace of God, he has, and by his future grace, he will continue to have the aim of our love for you and our labor for you to be your endurance in the faith. That as Paul is expressing his love and care for the church here in our passage today to have the church grow in their knowledge and their wisdom and their maturity in Christ, that leads to a life that ends with a faith that is intact. That is our goal as pastors in particular in this church. Why do we care for you? Why do we counsel you? Why do we encourage you? It's so that you make it to the end with your faith in Jesus remaining strong. That's what Paul is saying here because if we are persuaded by other arguments that take us away from the true gospel, we fall away from the faith. Why do spiritual leaders serve the church and labor hard for the good of it? with sacrificial service, it's to help the saints endure to the end, remaining strong in their faith. So we see Paul laboring hard and we see how we, different ones of us in the church, ought to labor hard, being tangible expressions of love to one another to help us make it to the end of the faith. But Paul says that his main aim when he's writing to Colossians is so that they can be presented mature in Christ. That's in verse 28. Let's read that again. Him we proclaim, that is Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So mature is a word probably all of us know, including the kids, but... Let's tease it out a bit to make sure we have a good understanding so we know what Paul is talking about here. One way to describe maturity or to be mature is to be someone who has grown into who we're supposed to be. Another translation of the Greek word used here is perfect. It's like being everything that you're supposed to be in Christ. Now that seems like a lofty goal for Paul, saying, my, my aim is to present everyone perfect in Jesus. Who in this room feels perfect in Jesus right now? Fully mature. All right, so there's still work to do, right? 
So part of our labor is to encourage one another, remind each other, point back, because there are going to be times where each of us are tempted to fall away back into our immaturity, back into, as Jimmy led us through Ephesians 4 earlier, back into our previous ways of childlike belief and behavior. God has given gifts to the church, leaders in the church, to point us back, to equip us, to build us up, and to proclaim the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to help us to mature into who we are supposed to be in Jesus. To be mature in Christ means to know him, to love him, to have perfect faith in him, unwavering, unshaken, that then leads us to perfect living. Again, we will not attain this perfect living while we are here on this earth, but we are always striving towards this maturity in Christ. When we have right belief, we will have right practice or right living. So right belief and remembering what Christ has done for us, who he is, what he has said, what he has said is required of us is imperative to being mature in Christ. We must know Christ in order to be firm in our faith. Let's look at our text and then I'm gonna read again our passage from earlier in our gathering from Ephesians 4 just to re-emphasize Paul's teaching to the church in Ephesus as it corresponds and parallels his teaching to the church in Colossae. So what is Paul teaching so that those people that are receiving his letters can attain this maturity? He says he is teaching the mystery hidden for ages and generation, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery hidden for all generations here in verse 26 is God's plan for redemption of his people that made it all the way even to those who were once considered outside of God's people who have now been brought in this mysterious, this glorious, this rich plan of redemption for a people. We also see that Paul is doing this and encouraging them to know Christ in chapter two, verse two, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul's service to the church is to teach them who Christ is and what he has done for them to redeem them so that they may have full assurance of understanding and that they may have knowledge which impacts their living. When we have knowledge of who Christ is and what he has done and the spirit has awakened our hearts, then we live in a different way. We stand firm in our faith, not able to be shaken by craftiness of argument against what Christ has done and who we ought to be. We become mature. Ephesians chapter four, like we read earlier, says the God gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain 
to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children. Again, immaturity language, who we were before. We are to be different. What did that look like? It looked like being tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When we are mature in Christ, we are not easily shaken from our faith and we are unified in our love for one another. That's what Ephesians chapter four says, and if we look back to the beginning of chapter two, that's what he, Paul writes again to the church in Colossae. He says in verse two that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding. Seems like this is a key teaching that Paul wanted to encourage the early church with, is that when we have a right understanding of who Christ is, what he's done for us, that salvation is only found in him, then we will love one another well, we'll grow into maturity, and we will believe right things that will cause us to have full assurance of our faith, that we will stand firm in that faith in Jesus. One illustration that kind of may help some of us think about this, and some of you might go, eh, not really a fan of this movie franchise, but it's kind of a big hit in my family currently. So if you, if you know the prequels of Star Wars, which I know even amongst Star Wars fans, it's like, ugh, you're choosing illustration from like the first three? But if we look to a Padawan named Anakin under his Jedi master, Obi-Wan, What is a Padawan? So those who don't know Star Wars, a Padawan is like a young trainee who is training to be a Jedi. There's actually a definition in like the Oxford Dictionary for a Padawan. They say it's a youthful, naive, or untrained person. That matches up kind of well with our early non-Christian or baby state of even being Christians. We can be naive. We can say, yes, I trust in Jesus. Yes, I call out to him to save me from my sin. And then, if we are not connected to mature spiritual leaders, we can be naive, thinking, oh, they're saying words from the Bible, and whatever they say that's related to that, that must be true, because they're tying it to the Bible. So Padawan, youthful, naive, untrained person. If you know the prequel stories of the Star Wars movie franchise, Anakin is a Padawan. He's being trained by a Jedi to follow the good, the right, the service of other Jedi order. But then he experiences hardship. And there's one there who wants to seek to take advantage of that and to steal him away from what is right, what is good, and what is sacrificial service. Senator Palpatine, the big bad guy. 
what he says to Anakin in Anakin's moment of immaturity, still being trained, in distress, things that are happening in his life that are hard. We're going somewhere. I'll try to get there faster than a quarter of a mile, though. What Palpatine says to Anakin, Anakin as he's this naive, shaken by coming tragedy, Padawan, he says, to cheat death is a power only one has achieved. But if we work together, I know we can discover the secret. Let's look towards the end of our text today. In verse four, Paul says, I say this, all of this previous section, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Some translations say fine-sounding arguments. Another way to say it would be logical things that sound good or pleasing to us. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. If we are not pursuing maturity in Christ, and if we do not have leaders in our lives teaching us from the word of God to remember that our salvation is in Christ alone and that sacrificial service and sacrificial life, living until he returns or we're called to glory to be with him, if we have those outside of the church or even inside saying there's a better way or there's a different way, when we're especially early in our faith or enduring suffering, if we are immature, we're easily led astray. Just like if you know the story of Star Wars, Anakin kind of goes away from the Jedi Order just a bit. I won't ruin it for everybody because I have to remember, even though movies are old, some kids don't start watching them until they're a certain age. But just a hint, Anakin doesn't stay in the faith. Or my wife, who's not young, hasn't watched them, but she has promised to watch them with my children. So I won't ruin them. It's funny. I see my daughter's like holding on to my, my wife. But when we are vulnerable, whether it's because we are young in the faith or naive or don't know our Bibles or if we're enduring hardship, if we are not remembering the riches of the glory of the mystery of the gospel, if we are not being taught right things and believing right things, which is what Paul is doing here for the church in Colossae, if we are not having right teaching to remember that Christ's sacrifice is enough, that sacrificial living for him as his follower, taking up our cross daily for him is the life we're called to, living humble lives as he lived for us, as Philippians 2 says, following in his pattern, the cruciform pattern, laying down our lives in sacrificial service to one another. There are a lot of other plausible arguments that will take us away from the gospel. There are plenty of good-sounding arguments in our society today and even within the church today that in our moments of immaturity, our weakness can take us away from the riches and the beauty that is the gospel. So Paul wrote to the Colossians to encourage them to remember Christ. 
that he is enough, that he is everything, that he has been made known to even the Gentiles, that Christ alone is the hope of glory and God's plan for redemption. And when Paul's writing this, he is trusting that this will cause them to have love for one another, chapter two, verse two, that they will reach full assurance that this, as John Piper puts it, objective understanding of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge will bring about a subjective assurance, a a feeling, a surety of our standing in Christ in front of our holy God. That when we know that the gospel, which is the treasure of wisdom and knowledge, is true, it will cause us to stand firm and to have assurance in our faith. So that's why Paul is warning and writing to this church that he loves, and most of whom we see he does not even know. Chapter two, verse one says, how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face. Paul's love for the church is so great that he is warning them so that they would trust in Jesus alone and have full assurance of understanding so that, in order that, no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Kids, I've said that word delude several times. It's probably not a word that you use or maybe even your parents use a lot. A related word that maybe you've heard of is delusional. So if somebody's delusional, it means that they believe kind of crazy or out there or false things. So to delude someone means to impose a misleading belief upon someone. Or another way to say it is to fool someone, to trick someone, to deceive someone. So when we are seeing Paul in the English translation, as it says, it says, so that no one may delude you. If you're reading it in your, in your head, you can think so that no one may trick you, so that no one may fool you, so that no one may mislead you with plausible or good-sounding arguments. So Paul is preaching the gospel so that people may stand in their faith and be assured in it and be firm in it. We're gonna look for a moment We've alluded a little bit. There are plenty of plausible or fine-sounding arguments in our day today that can point us away from the true gospel. I've said it a few times now. Those happen both within and outside of the church. So some arguments against trusting in Christ alone, the hope of glory, as Paul puts it here in verse 127. Some of the questions that we get or statements that we receive are, if God is good or even real, if he even exists, bad things wouldn't happen. So obviously, bad things are happening. If God's good, if he's real and powerful, he wouldn't allow what's been happening in Israel and Palestine this past week. He wouldn't allow what happened in our city down at the airport a couple of nights ago as a police officer lost his life. If God is good or even real, bad things wouldn't happen, right? Why do you put your faith and your trust in a God who can't even do things about the wrong in this world? 
when we're weak, when we lose a loved one, when we're enduring sickness, Our own hearts tell us this sometimes. The world tells us this. Why, you foolish one, do you say you trust in God? Open your eyes. There is no God. In our world, that is an argument that is made. But what do we see? we see God have an answer to that accusation. We see a God who is loving, that when we look at our entire human history, when we go back to the beginning, we see that we have a loving, powerful, compassionate creator who gave us life. In the beginning, God created all things and he called them good, but there was sin in this world. And that broke everything. There's curse, there is sickness, there is toil and working in the earth. Work is hard because of the curse. But God being rich in his mercy has shown us great love that he sent Jesus to rescue us just as he promised even at the beginning. Christian, whether new or old, I encourage you to remember that God is working out a plan for our good and for his glory. That God is good. That those who say that God is not at work in this world, that those who mock Christians who patiently wait and hope in him alone, that we indeed have a Savior who has come and is coming again to make all things right. Justice will happen. Sickness will be eradicated. God is good and he is patient in his goodness towards us. So even as Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, do not count God's patience as him ignoring us. He is coming back. He is coming to rescue us. God is good and will make all things right. That's a plausible argument, but God gives us an answer about his goodness. He has expressed his love to us in Jesus, and he is working his good plan for redemption, not only of a people, but of all things that will culminate in the new heavens and the new earth. There is an answer to that question. Another plausible argument in the church, or the church adjacent, is that if you do good enough, or do enough good, you'll be okay with God. So sometimes when we hear the Bible taught or we have kind of this arm's distance relationship with Jesus or the church or God himself, many of our neighbors, if we talk to them and they say, yeah, I believe in God, Um, you know, I'm a good person. So, you know, I know that I could be better, but I'm not that bad. I'm not 
stealing anybody's car. I'm not murdering anyone. I mean, have you seen the bad people around our city? I've done enough good that I think I'll be okay with God. I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but I think I'll be okay with God because I am better than most people. That's an argument or an understanding that a lot of people around us have. And if we aren't careful, if we are not remembering the goodness of Jesus and the riches of glory that are in him and his salvation for us, we'll start to think, I had a pretty good week. I mean, I'm not stealing anything. I might have lied to my parents like twice, like yesterday, but like, my sister lied like five times, so doing better than she is, so I must be good, right? But for those of us who might be older in the faith but acting in our immaturity, not that much mature than our younger, younger fellow disciples in the room, sometimes we can fall into the trap of thinking, I've read my Bible, I've prayed, I am doing good, and that's what makes God happy with me. We are called to do those good works, and they do please God, they are pleasing to him, but they are not what makes us right with him. In our immaturity, we can think, we need to do good things to stay in right standing with God. What did we read earlier? Our standing was secured by Christ's death on our behalf. That's the only reason we can come boldly to the throne. That's the only reason we can have a firm faith, that we can have assurance of understanding. It is because of what Christ has done. Don't think Don't receive teaching, don't believe words that say you just need to do more good than bad and you will be okay with God. That is dangerous. That is dangerous. Kids, don't think that the thing I need to do is be a perfect or a good kid and then I will be good with God. Our only hope before a holy God because of our sin is Jesus. His life and his death and his resurrection are sufficient. They are enough. They are all that we need to be right with God. You might encounter this if you have friends who follow different religions saying you have to do Penance for the bad that you do to make up for the bad. You might have friends who tell you that a different belief is what makes you right with God. Especially as our younger disciples in the room maintain friendships, I encourage you, talk with your parents. Talk with those you trust in the church. When you hear things that seem like, huh, maybe that makes sense. We need to look at God's word together to see if it really makes sense. We need to see if what other religions are saying is true by testing it against what we know and believe and trust is truly God's word. There will be times when there are logical arguments 
arguments that seem to make sense, that are against what Christ has taught us, what Paul is teaching us here, that salvation is in Christ alone, the mystery of God. When we are young in our faith and immature, steps towards maturity look like asking trusted, mature people right questions. So especially you who are younger, when you encounter what sound like good arguments against what Christ has done for us and said for us, I encourage you, test it. Talk to those who are more mature in the faith so that no one may trick you. No one may mislead you. No one may deceive you. We need help to rightly believe in God. We need help to be mature in Christ. By the grace of God, we will be leaders in the church who work hard to encourage us to know Jesus and to be firm in our faith. And by God's grace, he will continue to raise up leaders in our church, both as Bible study teachers, as small group leaders, as mature saints who may not be serving in any of those roles, and as pastors and teachers that will point us to the one hope that we have in the gospel so that we may join with Paul when he says, I am rejoicing to see you good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let us pray. God, we come to you now, confessing that our only hope is in Jesus, and that in him we are joined together, bonded in his grace and his love. And we ask that you would help us as you lead us into paths of suffering and service toward one another and toward our neighbor. We ask that you would help us to live like Jesus and to live like Paul as he lived like Christ. We thank you for this letter which was recorded not only for the church in Colossae and Laodicea but for us as well. We ask that you would help us to know you, to treasure you, and to trust that all treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ alone. And we pray that even as Jesus taught his disciples that we would give up everything for the treasure that is Jesus. That we would not hold on to other things as more valuable, but that we would hold on to Christ and have full assurance of our salvation, that we may grow in maturity to be who you've called us to be and to believe what you have taught us. God, we need your help to do this, so we ask that you would help us by your spirit, working in each one of us to build one another up in love. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.